You look at this keyboard and there's 88 keys, some white, some black. You want to know, where do I start? From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Right here, middle C. We're going to start with middle C, and we're going to work our way up to the next C. I can play a few songs, only a few though, and poorly. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little notes of audio we find all over the world. On the web, the air, we listen to everything we can get our ears on, then play you the best of what we hear each week. The next white note is D. We're going to take that piano out of you. You're going to have an operation. Never swallow a grand glass piano again. Never swallow a grand glass piano again. The next note after that, E, F, G. Mrs. Hansen was my first and only piano teacher. With her white hair, powdery skin, and many pendulous chins, she reminded me each week to keep my back straight, my hands arched, and my feet on the floor. Recitals were afternoons of scratchy crinoline dresses and punch. Like many kids, I quit after a few years when practice got hard and other things enticed me. And like many adults, I regret quitting. I would love to be able to sit down at a piano and play whatever I want, have people gather around me while I bang out anything from boogie-woogie to old Ethel Merman showstoppers. Today on ReSound, we explore the piano, but not just as a musical instrument. The piano as a spiritual healer as a symptom in a grand delusion, as a man's obsession, and as a beloved friend put out to pasture. Once upon a time, there was a Russian princess. Her name was Alexandra, and she had a curious relationship with a glass piano. Her story is part history lesson, part magical tale, part psychological study. It came to us from BBC Radio 3 as an entry in our 2011 documentary competition, and it's safe to say we had never heard anything like it. Here's The Glass Piano. When I came across the strange, true story of Princess Alexandra Amalia of Bavaria, born in 1826, I was intrigued by her dilemma. <gasps> the princess, at the age of 23, was observed walking sideways with great difficulty down the corridors of the royal palace. When questioned by her worried royal parents, who knew they'd inbred rather dangerously, the princess confesses that when she was a child, she had swallowed a grand piano made from glass. Consequently, because of her imagined shape, she is fearful that if she bumps into anything, the glass piano inside her might shatter. I do not want to be observed by the servants. 
I'm trying to imagine what it must be like to be Princess Alexandra. If I can just accept her language for a moment, it would be very difficult to get around with a grand glass piano inside her. It probably means that she can take no risks whatsoever in the world because if she does bump into anything, she will break and she will become a terrifying tangle of flesh and glass. I'm totally on side with the princess. I'm a writer interested in what people can't put into words and what they can't say if we were all hugely articulate and could own up to our most awkward thoughts, there'd be nothing to write about. Don't stand so close to me. Take three steps to your right. I can see her now. There she is, slowly, very delicately, making her way towards the dining room in the palace. She's wearing a white dress. Her hair is pinned up. Certain colours and smells distress her. Perhaps she's giving orders to her obedient and bewildered royal servants. I want the chairs on either side of me at the table to be vacant, and I do not want to sit on the chair that is carved and gilded. My preference is to lightly balance on the red silk chair with two cushions. Just one spoonful of soup, please, after which I request you open the two adjoining doors so I will not be crushed between them. Alexandra Amalia has swallowed something bigger than herself. What's going on? Hi, it's Deborah. Hi, come up to the table. I've come to speak to the psychoanalyst Susie Orbach. Susie, a hyperliteral response uh, would be for the royal parents to say, Alexandra, what's got into you? And she might reply, a grand glass piano, that's what. And her parents might say, we're going to take that piano out of you. You're going to have an operation. Never swallow a grand glass piano again. Well, I think you're describing a thoughtful parent because it's acknowledging something that the person has invented without saying it's mad. And I think if you can say it's not mad, then you can look at, what was that piano doing in there and what's its function? So I suppose I'd be the next step along and I'd be wanting to take as real for the princess her piano and I'd want to know all about that piano. I don't think I would be interpreting per se in the beginning because I would want to know the experience of carrying that piano around inside of you. So if we accept her language, mm. carrying a grand glass piano inside her is going to be pretty big. Do you think it's important that it's a piano, or do you think any object would do? I'm sure it is really important that it's a piano, because what's piano mean? It means softly, doesn't it, in musical terms. So I would assume... There's something that can't be heard and it's so fragile because it's glass. But if it could be played, it has a lot of notes on it.
There she is. She's moving across the marble corridors, gazing at the glass skylight above the staircase. She's probably on her way to the bedroom. I request my bed be placed in the middle of the room instead of against the walls. She's afraid of playing her glass piano because she thinks that the moment she attempts to express herself, she's going to shatter. And I'm very familiar with that feeling. When I start to write, you know, you do have to take a deep breath and just go for it. Yeah, I suppose what I would think, it's not that I would deny that at all, but what you're shattering or breaking up is known ways of being in the attempt to give voice to something else. So I think maybe this is the way I work as a therapist, is that I'm thinking not why can't she play her piano, but if she could, what would she play? In other words, I'd be wanting to go to the place that in her imagination can't be thought, which is the possibility of having that piano and having a voice. And its fragility being about tenderness, towards a part of herself that's undeveloped rather than a piece of her breaking. Her father was Ludwig I of Bavaria. He was distinguished by his shabby clothes and a large bruise on his forehead, always removed in paintings. Apparently, he enjoyed many extramarital affairs. Perhaps it was the bruise that drew women to him. He was also a notoriously bad poet who wrote masses of rhyming couplets. The poems might have been harder for his wife to suffer than his affairs. Strangely enough, his clever but troubled daughter was also a writer, possibly more skilled than her father, and she wasn't alone in thinking that part of her might be made from glass. My name is Erin Sullivan. My research is looking specifically at how people understood what sadness was. Do you think there's a connection between melancholy and the delusion of being made from glass? There's certainly a history of a connection between the two. One thing that doctors note throughout time into the 16th and 17th century is how diverse the symptoms of melancholy are. And one of the most interesting, really, is fears about the body being overly fragile or being vulnerable in some way. And so glass delusions is one of the fears that evolves out of this. So you have certain stories about men thinking that their entire body is made of glass and as a result, removing themselves from society because they're afraid that if they have too much contact with people, they will shatter. There's also stories of people being worried that particular body parts are made of glass, like arms or legs or even their hindquarters. This actually results in a lot of delight, really, in the medical stories because it's kind of a sharing of these strange things that happen to people. There is a wonderful story by Cervantes called The Glass Graduate. This tells of a man who believed his entire body was made from glass. He wears loose clothing, sleeps in straw, 
and he's so scared of people, he actually walks in the middle of the road to avoid injury from falling roof tiles. Another intriguing glass delusion is of a man who believed he had glass buttocks and so refuses to sit down. Reports of glass bones, arms and legs appear later in early modern Europe, but early accounts were particularly rich in allusions to men who thought they had glass hearts, chests, fragile heads, and the French king Charles VI even had iron ribs made under his clothes to protect himself from breaking, unsure about the fragility of his organs. Most of the case histories of the delusion of body parts being made from glass seem to be male. To be honest, they are predominantly male, and in fact all the ones I can think of are men, which is interesting because melancholy throughout the early modern period is associated with a kind of masculine nobility. This fascination really with melancholy exists in many centuries, just in different forms. So in the 18th century, with the dawn of Romanticism, you have a great interest in melancholia as a kind of beauty, really, that in great beauty there's also great sadness. You can't have the two separated if you want to create beautiful works of art. So a real aspiration to bring in both the exciting, the lovely, the pleasurable, but also the dangerous, the sad, the dark element, and you get the idea of the sublime. And so I think that interest in considering how different emotional states affects the way that we interact in the world, and certainly how we think about art, persists in all different periods and in the 19th century as well. Well, Aristotle thought that most poets and statesmen and philosophers were prone to melancholia with or without glass buttocks, so the princess might aspire to be a melancholic. She's definitely sad about something. All the same, she doesn't think her arm's made from glass. She has chosen a glass piano. Perhaps she's a sort of early cyborg, a collision of flesh and technology. Woman and piano have merged. The piano is, after all, an instrument of communication. The glass piano and the princess are communicating secretly. The German sculptor Joseph Beuys wrapped a grand piano in felt, as if trapping the sound inside it or silencing something. The felt was a kind of protective skin. Perhaps if the princess had somehow managed to conceptually cover her glass piano in felt, she might not have feared it shattering so much. The carpet's red if anything happens. The horrible thing is that her piano is wrapped in her own flesh and blood. How would it look on an X-ray? On the X-ray, it will be what we would call a radio-opaque object. Dr Fiona Lecky is consultant in emergency medicine and director of the Trauma Audit and Research Network. 
On an x-ray, the bones are the most visible uh, structure in the human body. All the other tissues, lungs, soft tissues around, the x-rays tend to go through that, which is why you see mainly bones on the x-ray. And a solid object that's radiopaque like glass will also, in a way, look like a piece of bone that's broken off. It will be the same density and this have the same photographic quality as that, so it will be a dense, dark object within the tissues is what we would see. Do you think the piano is useful to her in some way? Well, I suppose how we analysts like to look at it is that symptoms, and this is a symptom, are of use or can be made of use. So a person creates a symptom for various purposes and they're very creative act, symptom creation. So I think it must be of use to her and I don't know enough to know what she's trying to negotiate and what the conflicts are. But I would assume it's something to do with taking up space and not really knowing how much she can take up, being noticed while she's meant to have something quite invisible inside of her, being awkward where I imagine she's meant to be elegant, being hyper-visible where she's meant to be invisible as a person, but visible simply as a princess. So I would assume it has all those kinds of contradictory aspects to it. I will never, ever go horse riding again, ever. I'm trying to imagine how she might have walked with a whole piano squeezed inside her belly. I refuse to wear a tight-waisted jacket. She would have worn satin slippers tied round the ankles with silk ribbons and she'd be very careful to calculate positions that must be accurate to a matter of centimetres. So as she makes her way past the zinc lions and the velvet ottoman in the corridor... She's probably trying not to trip over her layers of starched petticoats. Certainly she would not have walked like a princess because in order to bear a piano inside of her, she would have had to have her legs quite far apart. True. And, OK, we want to think Freud because it's that moment in history where Freud discovers that we're all sexual beings. So you could say that her legs are far apart for that reason. But you also could say more, I think, culturally, that she's not taking up the normal space of a woman. She doesn't look like a princess on her little satin slippers is meant to look because she's having to negotiate around these corridors with this great big piano inside of her. I think she'll probably hobble with difficulty. It depends on the size of the piano and whether she's swallowed it whole or in pieces. Stephen Pollock-Hill is managing director of Nazing Glassworks. 
But of course, they had these big crinoline dresses, didn't they? And supports. And so I think whether she actually imagined that she had this piano right sort of in the middle of her walking along, but it makes you wonder, you know, whether with the keys and everything, as she walked along, she imagined it was tinkling and playing a tune, you know? It's a strange obsession that she'd have. be such an effort for her to move at all. It's as if time has slowed up around her. She must be very frightened. Absolutely. I mean, if she's convinced that she has a glass grand piano in her stomach, then she wants to avoid any impact that could shatter it and cause it to perforate her internal organs. So if she walks around the palace carefully, and I think it says somewhere she walks sideways, then... She's far more likely to be able to avoid anybody rushing who might bump into her or bumping into any strange objects. And if she walks sideways, those impacts are going to happen to her pelvis and not front onto her stomach. So, yes, in that slightly bizarre scenario, walking around carefully and walking sideways are going to reduce the chances of any unforeseen impact causing shattering and damage to the internal organs, which ultimately could result in death. How would doctors treat patients with delusions of being made from glass? One thing I noticed in a lot of the glass delusions is that they don't often include discussion of cures. You do have one story of a man, I believe he was a lord, who began to fear that his rear end was made out of glass. And there is a discussion of the doctor's cunning cure which is that this man was very precious about his glass parts and he would kind of walk around staying away from other people. And to some extent, he would also try to cover it with a pillow to keep himself protected from any kinds of hard objects that might shatter his glass bottom. And the doctor that finally deals with him basically cures him by beating him in the backside. because the man feels pain as he's beating him, and he says, well, first of all, you wouldn't feel pain if your backside was made out of glass, and second of all, it would have broken well before now. So in that sense, he kind of tricks him out of his delusion, and that's really characteristic of the medical treatments for these kinds of delusions, is doctors believe that melancholics couldn't really be reasoned with because they were so involved in their own fantasies that there was no point in trying to speak rationally to them. So the best way to approach their problems was to enter into the fantasy with them, but then to trick them out of it, really. Aha! Maybe I might have cured her. What if I was to give her a push? I suppose I'd have to wait round the corner... And just as she finally gets near her bedchamber and turns her back, I'm going to give her a shove. What are you doing? How dare you? How dare you? I was almost there. I was almost there. What a mad thing to do. Only somebody crazy would do a thing like that. How dare you? She's stumbling about and she's really angry. She's so furious. 
She's screaming so loudly she might break herself. Glass can break in many different ways. For instance, we were asked by the Home Office to develop a special glass window for prisons that was bomb-proof. And the gentleman pressed a button and on the horizon there was this big explosion from 100 kilos of Semtex. We worked out by having two pieces of glass that were actually held together with a special kind of silica gel they would actually give because the main thing that happens in explosion is the shock waves that cause most of the damage and breaks the glass. I was wondering what her life might be like without the piano. Well, I suppose the question is there's many different ways not to have the piano. If you can incorporate what the piano is, then her life might be very, very rich or tentative or express all the fears she has directly instead of indirectly and express her fragility. And I think once you've expressed, and if you, to use the modern vernacular, owned your fragility and your vulnerability, then actually you have enormous strength, don't you? So that would be one way of her having the piano. Another way would be if the piano is extracted. And that, I think, would be a terrible loss. She'd probably need another symptom. Well, it is rumoured that she also thought she had a sofa in her head, so it might take a whole removal van to get all those things out of her. I wonder what would happen if she took her symptom to A&E and said, I have to get this thing out of me. Well, we would perform our standard initial assessment for every patient which walks in, which is essentially eyeballing them and doing what we call the ABC assessment, airway, breathing, circulation, so that if they actually walked in and told us that, that's a sign that their airway is clear, they're able to speak. So then we would take a more detailed assessment of exactly what had happened, had they swallowed it, where did they think they had this glass grand piano, and checking their pulse and blood pressure for any signs of internal haemorrhage. And then once the patient was stable, we would start to do some x-rays to find out exactly where the object was. So I guess the two assessments is where is the object and how much damage has it done to the patient so far. And whether we reach for surgery or not really depends on the patient's condition. We would be very concerned that somebody who presented with doing something like that was suffering some kind of major psychosis. In the end, it's called somatisation. We do sometimes label them as having deep psychological distress, but it manifesting itself as a physical disorder. Once we were happy that the patient was physically stable, we would be contacting our psychiatrists very early on and asking them to come and do a, a detailed assessment of the mental state. loves her piano. I think it's an extraordinary thing to create and I want her to play it without shattering. What would it take? Well, of course, if she were a patient, a modern-day patient, with a piano, a glass piano inside of her, we would hope that she could find within her 
to accept the parts of her that are vested in the piano. And that she could begin to recognise those notes and to play with them and to play the piano so that it wouldn't be so much shattering, although there would be a loss in giving up the piano, but it would be an incorporation into herself of the bits that she had put on the piano. The princess wrote short stories, plays, poetry, none of which I've been able to find. She never married, and she spent much of her life in a convent in Munich where she became an abbess. In 1850, she was treated in a mental institute on the edge of the Black Forest, and she died aged 49. All the same, I'd like to think that she might at least have come to like the idea of playing her piano. Because, as Proust put it, in Remembrance of Things Past, ideas come to us as the successors to griefs. And griefs, at the moment when they change into ideas, lose some of their power to injure the heart. If the princess and I were to meet for a drink, we'd probably eye each other rather nervously. And what might she choose? I reckon it would be creme de menthe. Mm. It's glassy and green after all. Delicious. Cheers. Prost. The Glass Piano was produced by Kate Bland and presented by writer and poet Deborah Levy for BBC Radio 3. The voice of Princess Alexandra was performed by Emily Watson. Once I start tuning, I completely shut the world out. All these sounds just swimming around the room, invading every bit of my consciousness. Inside the grand shell of a piano is a complicated and delicate system, hundreds of working parts that require the care of a doctor with highly specialized skills. Ted Sample has been doctoring pianos for over 70 years with a love that's eclipsed everything else in his life. Can you hear this? Whoa, 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 whoa. Just like that. Can you hear that? Good. My name is Ted Sambill, actually Edward, but everyone calls me Ted. Certainly not good-looking. I'm very bookish. That's uh, the way I am, I guess. <laughs> I'm a piano technician of many years, in fact, over 70 years now. Mm-hmm. I'm 86 years old. Ted has a one-bedroom apartment with two pianos. It's so crammed that the pianos are lined up, one next to the other. But for Ted, the more the merrier. Tuning pianos has never gotten old for him. Even now, 
once I start tuning, I completely shut the world out. All these sounds just swimming around the room, invading every bit of my consciousness. See, I went to school in England for um, children with poor vision. I'm short-sighted. One of the possibilities of a career was piano technician. It opened up a whole world, dazzling new world of pianos for me. Something blooms and is beautiful. And so you get a sensation of satisfaction from pure beauty. You'll have to watch your ears for this one. Across from his pianos, Ted has a workshop set up. There are drills and hammers and wrenches all over the place. And he uses his workshop for one thing, making piano tuning tools. I'll show you the little tool. It's just a piece of tube. It looks something like a question mark. Ted uses these tubes to fix broken piano strings. He makes them for himself, but he also likes to give them to people like other piano tuners. And that's what he's doing today. The only problem is he needs a drive. Because he's short-sighted, he's never had a license. My ex-wife only lives a block down. We're, we're good friends. She drives, so she just might. Ted heads over to see if he can hitch a ride. My name is Mary Watson. Got a daughter and four grandchildren and an ex. Ted sits next to Mary on the couch. She looks over at him and wonders how she'd describe her ex-husband. <laughs> you want me to lie? I don't do lie very well. She loves to kid and joke, and that's fine. Sometimes I'm the butt of the joke, but I don't mind a bit. <laughs> Ambitious, always busy. British to the core. <laughs> I was the one who always had to sit and listen to the bad notes being pulled into tune. It drives you crazy after about two pianos. Racket. Definitely racket. Music to him. Not to me. I think somehow we just grew apart, and that may be my fault. Being so deeply uh, into the field... Because I don't drive, she was continually having to drop what she was doing and take me to the customer. The only time Mary didn't have to drive Ted was when he would hop on a plane to get to a very special customer. With Glenn Gould, he always just simply accepted what I did. You know, he wouldn't shake hands with people because he said uh, strong handshakes would hurt his hands. But then... When I arrived, he advanced his hand like this, and he said, you can shake just the tips of the fingers very gently, please. I felt I'd be awarded a medal. <laughs> Mary agrees to give Ted a ride to the piano store. Yes. Hi, I'm Mary. Mary. This is Coming in and leaving, so oh, I just yeah. wanted to meet oh, you. Ted has okay. talked uh, about Mary you. So. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. Um. I'm the lucky. <laughs> Ted and Mary walk into DS Pianos a store where people come to buy pianos and technicians come to tune. Ted hands over the little tuning tool he made. Thank you, Ted. I feel welcome here. <laughs> My name is Steve Grega. I've known Ted since I've been in Canada, which is now about 24 years. Ted's uh, a unique individual. He's sincere, uh, very, very special. Ted doesn't want to leave without taking a look at the pianos first and, of course, playing his favorite tune. We'll do the um, uh, C minor prelude by Chopin.
Ted the Tuner was produced by Julianne Hazelwood. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. How do you make yourself heard? Play us a tune. Write us a note. Our address is resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Eventually, the life of an instrument comes to an end. What then? Throwing it away seems blasphemous, and yet it has to go somewhere. Julia Krolik and Owen Fernley are experimental musicians who study the slow decay and sudden transition seen all around us. What they study in our next story is a well-loved, well-worn piano. There is a decomposing piano in our backyard. It was made on June 25, 1909. We first encountered this piano three years ago at the Grac Club in Kingston, Ontario. It required frequent movement to be played as it was located in a separate room from the busy music hub. It was during one of these feats of athleticism that the piano suffered a broken leg. sat in silence while open mics and concerts continued across the hall. I was born and raised in the mound by the hazard hollow Where cold cats rolled and rumbled past my door The sound of the piano was missed and we decided to exchange our working piano for the grad clubs. Alright, let's do this. With a few helping hands, the broken piano made its last trip out of the Grac Club and into our own backyard.
failed instrument gave its last cry when it arrived at its final destination. Propped by stones, the piano became accustomed to the outside air. Despite the stiffening action, it was played on several fall evenings. Shortly after, it was left under a tarp to endure the upcoming winter. Spring, known as the season of new beginnings and changes, did not leave the piano out. The keys in the action were removed to reveal the iron harp, and the strings were painted to match the notes. In this way, the piano was resurrected as a new instrument for its centennial performance. harp was played alongside modern-day electronics and natural sounds.
the performance, the harp was returned to its resting place. Soon, the final push must occur to remove the piano from where it sits. But for now it rests in our backyard. The tension once built within its frame relaxes with each passing season. That was Centennial Accident by Julia Krolik and Owen Fernley. To find out more about their experiments in sound, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Sit in a simple, graceful, unconstrained posture. Never turn up the eyes or swing about the body. However loud you wish to play, do not thump. Aim more at pleasing than astonishing. And now we come to the last piano of the hour, and it's anything but decomposing. It's the heart and hearth of the bar where it lives, a famous piano bar in the West Village of New York City called Marie's Crisis. The pianist is Jim Allen, and he describes the family of regulars at the bar as a Fellini version of the Waltons. He learned the piano from his father, who felt that the instrument should be played only to celebrate God's glory. At Marie's Crisis, all of Jim's influences come together as the bar is its own unlikely kind of church, as healing for him as it is for the people who gather around the piano to sing and listen. I'm going to play the theme and two variations on Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. Father's social skills were not that good. He could teach you anything about Dvorak or Greek, but he really couldn't say, how's the weather? I only saw my father cry maybe twice in my life. <laughs> and maybe men aren't supposed to cry, but oftentimes he should have. He'd have, been, he'd have felt bad. I was working as a court reporter in Stamford, Connecticut, and um, the prosecutor noticed that I sang between court sessions. And he said, I think I know a place you should go. And he took me to Marie's, and uh, about a year later, another piano player said, well, I'm leaving day after tomorrow. And the owner turned to me and said, would you like to start playing? Paris, they have a Maurice Crisis Night. There's two piano bars in London that have Maurice Crisis Nights. It's a, it's an iconic, it's bizarre because it's a dive. It's cracked red stools and Christmas lights and small drinks. I mean, it's a dive. 
and yet there's no microphone, so everybody's a star. I've got lots of lawyers, I've got lots of frustrated housewives. On the weekend, it's mostly women with tall hair, the higher the hair, the closer to God from Long Island. And, uh, during the week, we, we do show music. I've got something like 16,000 songs memorized which means I can usually give someone what they need at the time. I make people happy. Or if they need to cry, I make them cry. I had a guy who came in and asked me to sing the song On My Own from Les Miserables. Now, normally I'd make fun of it, but I knew I, for some reason, I shouldn't. And it turned out he said thank you, and then he called um, the ambulance to take away his lover who was dead in the apartment in the next block. For most people, the piano bar is just frivolous, just, it's just super silly, but sometimes you need that, and sometimes you can get just that little thing you need. So what I do is silly and stuff, but it does good. <laughs> It helps people get through things. My father had to give up his teaching to support his family. He couldn't make a living doing what he loved and was good at. He had to do manual labor. And I wanted to be able to make a living as a musician. My father, I found out later, was living vicariously through me. After he died, he did arrangements of every song I ever written. When I'm going through his stuff, every song I'd ever written, he'd done arrangements of. So he must have found some worth in them. The first time I played at Carnegie Hall, my father wouldn't come to visit me because I wasn't doing religious music. And my father didn't differentiate you, either you're singing, living for Jesus, or, you know, fornicating on a full moon. I mean, there's no middle ground. I mean, I still consider myself a Christian, but most of the people I meet, most Methodists wouldn't ever even speak to.
We d- we did uh, a couple of hymns yesterday in the piano bar. And you can get as much inspiration from The Wind Beneath My Wings or You Needed Me or Amazing Grace. In a very narrow construing of Christianity, yes, your one purpose is to proselytize, to go out and get whatever you can. But you really can't do that if you don't have a drink with the town whore. And what I do at Marie's, you get to the same place in your well-being. It's just not a, a religious conversion. But sometimes when you're in the middle of all that jazz or something like that, it feels religious. I often have a goal once a month to try to make the whole bar cry. It may seem silly, but most people don't laugh outrageously or cry. When my brother was dying, uh, one of the customers handed me $250 and said, go home. I knew he only made $200 a week. We are a strange bunch, but we are a family, and we take care of each other. And every Christmas, Thanksgiving, anytime it's a birthday, if they don't have family, they come see me. probably wasn't going to get married to a woman. My father couldn't talk about most things, but he accepted me as I am. Marie's Crisis was produced by Kevin T. Allen, a sound artist and filmmaker from Brooklyn, New York. There's no more magical, wonderful experience than listening to the radio in the dark. The paramedics were like, we were doing chest compressions. You were dead. This is I would knock on a door, they would open a door, I'd put a gun in their face, go into the house and take the drugs. 
If you like the kind of work you hear each week on ReSound, you are going to love the Third Coast Filmless Festival on October 19th and 20th at the Old Town School of Folk Music. Sit in a darkened auditorium to listen to amazing radio stories, meet the talented producers who made them, and come to our annual awards ceremony. More information and tickets can be found on our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our intern is Maya Goldberg-Safer. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. Support also comes from City Winery, Chicago's urban winery, restaurant, and 300-seat music venue, featuring Anushka Shankar on November 12th, 13th, and 14th. Tickets are available at citywinery.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation and the Menaki Foundation. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.